podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Monday, the 18th of December. I hope you're all well and having yourselves a very pleasant day. I hope everybody had a good weekend. We had 10 matches in the Premier League. We had only nine outcomes, though, and we are going to start with that game that got suspended. Bournemouth won, Luton Town won. Luton had gone 1-0 up, an early goal from Adebayo. Then Bournemouth equalised. And then the game kind of settled into a pattern and looked like it might actually be a decent game. But on 60 minutes, Tom Lockyer collapsed and that was the end of proceedings. Uh, Tom Lockyer, obviously, in the playoff final, 
collapsed and was forced off with a cardiac event. It appears at this time he had a full-blown cardiac arrest. Now, from the latest reports that I've seen, he is doing okay. The signs are positive. But it does bring into question whether or not he should have been playing, whether or not he should have been able to resume his career as quickly as he did. Obviously, we've seen with Christian Eriksen, player have a cardiac arrest and Christian Eriksen died on the football pitch and was resuscitated and has come back and been able to continue his career. But he had a significant spell where he didn't play. Whereas with Tom Lockyer, I don't know that we'll see him play again. I don't know that he'll be able to get cleared to play again. Having had the incident in May and now having another one. Thankfully, it does look like he is going to be okay, at least from, you know, being able to carry on with his life perspective. Whether he's able to carry on with his career or not remains to be seen. But the only thing that you can care about at this moment of time is that he gets to continue living. And, you know, for the players and the fans that were at that game, must have been a very, 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 a tense is the wrong word, but it must have been quite a surreal experience. Now, for some of the Luton players that were involved in that playoff game, when it happened, it must have been deja vu for them. The Bournemouth players, though, I mean, the reaction of the Bournemouth players, you, you could see it in them, that they knew something was drastically wrong. I thought Rob Edwards, the Luton manager, handled it very well, ran onto the pitch and made sure that the professionals had the space that they needed to work on Lockyer and ensure that we got a positive outcome. Um, but that's a that's a tough break for for both teams. It, you know, it just I can see that having a knock-on effect. The type of incident that you witness that just kind of hangs with you for a considerable period. And it was good to see the Premier League and you know many clubs tweeting out their their thoughts and the, you know their, their hopes that Tom Lockyer and the support for Tom Lockyer. He would make a full recovery. Um, you'd imagine many others contacted Luton in private without putting it out on social media. Uh, hopefully he does make a full recovery. Um, to, to his credit, I thought recently he was actually starting to play really well when he was in the team. And he obviously got a big goal a few weeks ago. And there was just there was good plus signs for him. This is This is just a hammer blow, though. And it's a hammer blow for Luton as well, who are now going to be without their captain moving forward. So we'll see. But the, the football does very much take a back seat when anything like that happens. And thankfully, thankfully, we didn't get another, you know, Mark Vivian Foe situation. Um, Friday night, Nottingham Forest nil Spurs 2. Richarlison opened the scoring. Dejan Kulisewski made it 2 and then Yves Basuma was sent off with 20 minutes left. And you thought that might make things tricky here for Spurs because we know Spurs don't just, you know, adapt to playing with 10 men and alter how they're playing. They just keep playing the same way. And it can leave even bigger spaces than you'll find in their normal 11-man set. But they held out and they got themselves a confidence-boosting away win. Chelsea 2, Sheffield United nil. Cole Palmer and Nicholas Jackson with two goals in eight minutes in the second half for Chelsea. They were the dominant side. They controlled the game. They limited Sheffield United to half chances and pot shots. 
they created some good chances themselves. They probably should have scored three or four. Brohia had maybe the miss of the season. Um, but Cole Palmer, vital in what they're doing. Raheem Sterling remains their best and most important player. It was his burst of pace that really turned the game around and gave Cole Palmer the opening goal. And from there, it was a bit more comfortable. He was also heavily involved in the creation of the second goal. Would have had a penalty if the ball hadn't been squared to Jackson to tap home from a yard. Chelsea needed this win. It's not a good win because they're playing a bad team and they're at home and they're Chelsea and they've spent a billion quid, but they needed this win. They get the win, they move on. Manchester City 2, Crystal Palace 2. We've seen City drop a surprising number of points so far this season. Uh, But this, to me, is the most surprising because in this game at home to a very average Crystal Palace team who came into the game in 15th and were missing key players, City went 2-0 up. Uh, Jack Grealish with a nice finish after a nice little pass from Phil Foden and then Rico Lewis making it 2 on 54 minutes. City 2-0 up at home cruising. Now, very, very fortunate to still have 11 men because Ederson should have been sent off after he came out of his box and brought Mateta down, who was through, and it was a clear goal-scoring opportunity. He brings Mateta down, somehow doesn't even get uh, doesn't even get the red card that he should have got. So I'm not really sure how that one worked out. Um, but on fifty, I'm sorry, on six, 76 minutes, Mateta did pull one back after good work by Jeffrey Schlupp. And then on 94 minutes, Mateta latches on to a loose ball in the city penalty area, gets there quicker than Phil Foden expects him to. Foden goes to clear the ball, kicks Mateta full force in the shin, nearly breaks his own foot, and it's a penalty to Crystal Palace, and Michael Elise steps up, and it's never in doubt. Never, ever in doubt. Sends the goalkeeper the wrong way. Very, very calm. Great point for City. Great, great point for City. Uh, Sorry, for Palace. Great point for Palace. Dreadful result for City, who lose more ground on the top of the table. They're now five points off top, which is, you know, I mean, this is where they were last season. They're not going to be overly bothered by it. But it does mean that when they come back from the World Club Cup, they're likely going to be sitting in fifth. Now, they will have a game in hand on Spurs, but they're four points behind Villa, four points behind Liverpool, five behind Arsenal. So, they're they're further back than they would have expected. That was a really poor result, which was just so surprising because the performance was pretty good. They played really well up until about 20 minutes to go. And then all of a sudden it just, it was a calamity. Great point for Palace, who needed it after three defeats in the previous four. Should ease a little bit of pressure off Roy, but... The story in this one is is just City. It really is. It's just how poor they were in that last 20 minutes. Um, Newcastle 3, Fulham 0. I don't even know how to describe this Raul Jimenez sending off. If anyone has seen the highlights of the 82 World Cup where Tony Schumacher comes hurtling hurtling off his line, There is a ball played over the top. It's Germany versus France, I should point out. There is a ball played over the top. 
Schumacher is the German goalkeeper. There is a French defender called Patrick Battiston, who is herring towards the ball at full pelt. Schumacher comes out, realizes he's not quite going to get the ball, jumps to protect himself, and his hip catches Battiston in the face. Now, he did far more damage to Battiston than what happened here. This was far less force in the contact. Um, Battiston ended up in a coma. He was hit that hard. And he ended up losing teeth and having broken ribs. Like, he got properly plowed out of it. Whereas here, um, it's, it's the same action. He jumps, he turns in the air, and he catches him with his hip into the face. I think it's rightly a red card. I just don't know what Jimenez was thinking. Like, I really don't know what he was thinking here. It took Newcastle a while to finally break them down, but Lewis Miley opened the scoring on 57 minutes after brilliant work by Gamerish. Miguel Almiron made it two on 64 after Callum Wilson was pulled down in the box and the ball broke loose to him. I didn't like Callum Wilson, even when he could see the ball had gone in, still arguing for a penalty. Like, your team has just scored. Go and celebrate. I know you'd have taken the penalty, but surely you can be happy that your teammate has scored. Uh, Dan Byrne made it three on 82 minutes. It's a good cross to the back post by Gamerish. His first header is saved brilliantly by Burnt Leno, and it kind of bounces off Dan Byrne and into the net. And I think Dan Byrne was basically apologising to Burnt Leno, who was lying in the back of his net looking up. Newcastle were dominant and well, well deserving of their win. They were the better team and they needed this win as well. Like they really needed a win after the, the last couple of months that they've had with some poor results and a lot of injuries. And then obviously going out of the Champions League. Last game on Saturday, Burnley nil, Everton two, Andre Onana on 19 minutes, Michael Keane on 25 minutes. Everton absolutely deserving winners. We won't talk more about them today. Um, I did think James Trafford actually played very well in goal for Burnley, made a couple of great saves, but he just really does struggle on crosses. He doesn't have the physical strength and the the presence to deal well with crosses that are in his six-yard box. Onana just monstered everybody on the first one. Now, he makes a really good save on the second goal. Michael Keane's first shot, he managed to make a great save at takes a deflection on the rebound and bounces back to Michael Keane. He finishes well. But I don't know. It's just one of those kind of strange games where Everton were the better team, but Burnley had more of the ball and more shots, but didn't really create a whole lot of anything. Ben Godfrey made one really good defensive intervention. Other than that, Everton didn't really have a lot to defend. I mean, Pickford had a fairly easy game. I think he made two saves. They were both fairly straightforward. But Everton's march continues. They are 16th. They are now seven points clear of the relegation zone. And again, bear in mind, they were docked 10 points. If not for that, they would sit 10th, level on points with Brighton, and just one goal worse off. That's an amazing job that Sean Dyche has done. 
absolutely amazing job that Sean Dyche has done this season. Uh, moving into Sunday's games, West Ham 3, Wolves 0, 2 from Mohamed Kudus and 1 from Jared Bowen, all assisted by Lucas Paqueta. He almost had another assist for Bowen, who hit the post after a lovely kind of quick snapshot that the goalkeeper wasn't expecting. The Kudus goals are excellent. The first one, it, the beautiful strike. He, he makes such good contact with the ball off either foot. His pace, his directness really does cause problems for teams. I thought the third West Ham goal is really good from Bowen. And don't take anything away from Jared Bowen. He plays the one-two. He carries the ball. He finishes well on his weaker side from a difficult angle. I just don't feel like the goalkeeper should get beaten from there. Given that the shot wasn't exactly the most powerfully well-struck shot. It's a good shot. And it's very, very accurate. But it's not like it rasps past him. It's a bit of a daisy cutter. I just think the keeper should probably do a little bit better. But a great win for West Ham. Um, that's big big wins in back-to-back games after the Freiburg win. So they're, uh, they're starting to get things moving in the right direction. Obviously, this season they've had a very mixed bag of results in the Premier League. They've won eight. They've lost six. They've scored 29, but they've conceded 30. So, you know, they've shown themselves to be a good team. They've obviously improved on what they were last year. But they had a couple of players started the season really well and that they've dropped off. They had some players that started poorly. Now they're playing well. We're yet to see West Ham really put it all together for, you know, three or four games where their best 11 is on the pitch and playing well together. Um, Moving on, Brentford won, Aston Villa two. Another win for Villa. Keen Lewis Potter opened the scoring for Brentford on the stroke of half time after poor defensive work by Alex Moreno on a set piece. Ben Mee was sent off for a particularly horrific challenge on Leon Bailey. And the only reason Leon Bailey wasn't being stretched out of there is because he could see it coming because they were literally running for the ball from direct opposite. And Mee, it's reckless, it's high, it's, it's horrendous. It's an absolutely... Stonewall red card. Uh, Alex Moreno equalised on 77 minutes off a cross, I think, I think from Leon Bailey uh, at the back post. Nice header past the goalkeeper. Ollie Watkins wins at Travilla on 85. And this is where things get weird. It's a Villa set piece. It's a gorgeous little flick on by Bubakar Kamara and Ollie Watkins is left with a simple header. To, to score their second goal and put them in the lead. He then proceeds to walk into the net and kind of stand there and just stare into the crowd. And a couple of the Villa players join him. And then the Brentford players seem to get very upset by this, which I don't really understand. If the, if he'd ran over to the corner flag and done it, I, they, they wouldn't have said a word. But because he does it in the Brentford net, some of the players seem to get really upset. And the game got very feisty around then. And then on 95 minutes or 96 minutes, Neil Mopé, I think, is caught offside. Emmy Martinez comes across to take the free kick. He bumps Mopé, who then embarrasses himself by flying onto the ground and flailing around a little bit, waving his arms about as if he should be getting something. Martinez takes exception to this, tries to drag him up off the ground, couple more players get involved. 
Bubakar Kamara initially starts to act as the kind of peacemaker. And he's trying to separate everybody. He's trying to calm some people down. And then all of a sudden you see him with his hands kind of around the throat of a Brentford player. And it's Yarmuluk. And when you watch it back, he has his hand on Yarmuluk and he's basically trying to calm him down. And Yarmuluk very aggressively strikes at Kamara's arm, which then prompts the reaction. And Kamara does lose it for just a split second. Uh, he gets sent off. That's going to be an enormous blow to Villa for to lose him for three games. But I didn't feel like he should have been going off alone. I felt like there was one or two others who were massively riled up and going beyond the line of what's generally acceptable in any kind of a footballing altercation. But look, Villa will only care about the three points for now. They'll deal with with what's to come. They've got Sheffield United at home. Then they go to Manchester United and then it's Burnley home. They'll be the three games Kamara will miss. The United one is tough, but they should still have enough to go there and get something. And they should win those two home games against Sheffield United and Burnley, even without Kamara. Um, moving on, Arsenal 2, Brighton nil. probably Arsenal's best performance of the season. Now, Brighton just, I mean, handed it to them, lining up with James Milner and Adam Lallana in the team, starting with nine men. And Milner against Saka, was, it was, it was embarrassing. It genuinely was embarrassing. Um, it, it's time to just sit, sit down somewhere, son, and, and retire. You can't play at this level. You cannot play at this level. Um, Arsenal created a lot of half chances. Very little that you class as clear cut. Verbrugge made a couple of good saves. One late from Odegaard was outstanding. Um, but Arsenal did struggle to, to really break them down. They went ahead on 53 minutes. It's a goal that's entirely of Brighton's own making just gifting Arsenal opportunities. Um, and then the corner comes in, Van Hecke, a very, very weak defensive header that doesn't go anywhere except into his own six-yard box, which Gabriel Jesus happily finishes off. Um, Brighton should have equalised. Pascal Gross misses a big chance after good work down the left by Joe Pedro. And Matoma, not sure why Joe Pedro didn't start in this one. But he misses. And then within a couple of minutes, Arsenal are 2 0 up. And Kai Havertz on a counter attack gets through. He tries to dink the goalkeeper. He doesn't catch it sweetly, but the goalkeeper is expecting the dink and just can't, can't close his body. And uh, it goes in. And look, good for Kai Havertz. He's on a bit of a, a goal scoring run at the moment. He is obviously a good player. But that was probably Arsenal's best performance of the season so far. It puts them back top of the table. Um, 17 games in, obviously, so, you know, a long, long way to go. But, yeah, their best performance of the season, I would say. Now, again, like Brighton are missing a lot of players. And when you start James Milner and Adam Lallana in a game like that, you're basically asking to lose. Uh, final game then, Liverpool nil, Manchester United nil. Liverpool were dreadful as they were in the previous three games in the Premier League. 
Uh, they did have 34 shots, but only created one big chance, eight shots on target, nothing that really tested the goalkeeper. Um, the closest they came to scoring was probably the Trent shot in the second half. That looked for all intents and purposes like it was going in, and then it just sort of ran itself wide at the last second. It is what it is. Diogo Delo was sent off on 94 minutes for descent. Luke Shaw should have been sent off after a horrific tackle on Ibu Kanate. Um, but Liverpool can have no real complaints. They were garbage. Now, United were awful. They, they showed no ambition. They came for a point. United came for a point, simple as that. There was no thought with them that they were going to try and win this game of football. They had one shot on target the whole game. They came to not get hammered. And it's a bit of a damning indictment on Eric Ten Hag that this far into his uh, tenure, this is what he's serving up. So, yeah, that's what we have. A league table with Arsenal top 39 points. Liverpool and Villa on 38, City on 34, Spurs on 33, then Newcastle on 29, United on 28, West Ham on 27, Brighton on 26, then a gap to Chelsea on 22, Fulham on 21, Brentford 19, Wolves 19, Bournemouth 19. Bournemouth obviously have a game less played. Uh, Crystal Palace on 17, Everton on 16, Forest on 14, Luton on nine, Burnley and Sheffield United on eight points each. Right. I want to talk about a couple of teams. So the first thing I want to talk about today is Everton. Four wins in a row. They're the only team in the league who've won each of their last four games. They're one of only four teams with four wins in their last five. The others being Arsenal, who are top of the league. Aston Villa, who are second, a point behind Arsenal, and Bournemouth, who have really dragged themselves out of the mire. But you look at these Everton results and these performances, and yes, beating Nottingham Forest, that's a game you kind of expected them to win in some ways. You know, when you take a bigger picture look and you see, well, Everton should actually be 10th, you would then expect them to beat Nottingham Forest. But the wins over Newcastle and Chelsea and the manner in which they won this Burnley game, they were really impressive. Like, there was a control to them in this Burnley game that I hadn't seen much of. Again, it is Burnley, so it's not like they're playing a top team, but what they've done is they've gone in, they've looked at the situation, thought, we're better than you. We're going to go in front, and then we're just going to control this game and manage it. We don't need to beat you 6 or 7 nil. As long as we beat you 2-0, we're happy out. But they were missing key starters. No Brandwaite, who's been fantastic this season. No Michaelenko, who's also been excellent this season. Uh, No Ashley Young, who's been dreadful. So that's actually a positive. But they changed the shape, went to a back three with fullbacks, not not wingbacks, do not, under any circumstances, mistake Sean Dyche for someone who plays things as fancy as wingbacks. He had fullbacks in there and three centre-backs. Patterson played right back, a couple of defensive lapses early, thought he grew into the game. 
Dwight McNeil is the left back. Now, he did have a lot of freedom, to be fair. I am joking about the wing back thing, but he did have a lot of freedom to get forward. And because Harrison was playing on the other wing, at times they were going to a 4 5 1 with Tarkovsky sort of filling in as a, a makeshift left back. But McNeil, I thought, was really good in that wing back, left back, whatever type of role. And I would be interested to see them try that system with him there, Patterson on the right. Godfrey, Tarkovsky in the middle and Branthwaite when he's back uh, or Michael Enko if he's back first. I'd be interested just to see how it would look for them. Dukure played a different type of role than he has been, was, was less advanced, but still very influential. Onana, I thought, was the best player on the pitch. I just think he looks head and shoulders above everybody else at the moment. Um, Harrison, I thought, was lively. You know, we, we know the technical ability. We know he's a good player. But I, I thought he was—I thought he was lively and involved here. And Garner just knits things together for them. It's a very balanced team. But I was impressed with the way the defense adapted. Like Godfrey's barely played this season. Michael Keane had been really poor when he'd been called on, and Tarkovsky playing on the left side of a three is difficult for him. He's a heavily right-footed player. But all three of them played individually well and collectively they played really well. They just looked very strong and composed. They won their aerials, they cleared their lines and they all showed an ability to play out from the back. Like like I said earlier, Pickford had so little to do. And you look at the bench and Beto comes on and Lewis Dobbin comes on. After that, I mean, Dan Juma is there, whatever. Sean Dice just has no time for him by the looks of things. Um, Chermetti, he's a kid. They've got two backup goalkeepers and then three children, Mackenzie James Hunt, Elijah uh, Elijah Campbell and Jensen Metcalf. Like Dyche at the moment is working with injuries, issues and, you know, a light squad. And he's just doing a tremendous job. And, you know, when you look at, at their results this season, they've had some poor ones. There's no question they've had a couple of poor results. Like, for example, they begin the season with a defeat at home by Fulham. Okay? That's not a great result. That's that's a pretty poor result, to lose at home to Fulham. Then they go and they get smacked by Arsenal. I'm sorry, by, by Aston Villa. Then they lose at home to Wolves. Like, a draw at home with either of those teams wouldn't be a bad result. Losing away to either of those teams I wouldn't mark as a bad result. But losing at home to them, I think, are bad results. They go and they draw at Sheffield United. I think they would have wanted to win that one, but it's not a bad result necessarily. They lose at home to Arsenal, fair enough. They go and they beat Brentford, a really good result. First win of the season, match day six. Then they lose at home to Luton, and that's a terrible result. Then they just wipe the floor with Bournemouth. Then they lose to Liverpool, fair enough. Then they go and they beat West Ham. Then they go and they beat Crystal Palace. Then they go and they beat Forest. Then they beat Newcastle and Chelsea at home. Now they go and they beat Burnley. So they've gone to Brentford. They've gone to West Ham. They've gone to Palace. They've gone to Forest. They've gone to Burnley. And they've won games. They've won five games away from home this season already. That is the sign of a good team. Last season, they won only twice away from home all year in the Premier League. The season before that, they won twice away from home. 
So Dyche has won five times this year, more than the last pre- the previous two seasons combined. You look at the 2021 season, when there was no fans, they won 11 times. They were actually a very good away team. 11 wins, four draws. That was the, the key to what Ancelotti did, was he made them a very good away team, but they were garbage at home that year. But their away form was really, really strong. Previous season, they win only five. Carlo obviously takes over halfway through the year with them looking a little bit hopeless. Uh, season before that, they win five. They finished eight that year, 18-19, but only won five away games. Season before that, they, f- they won three away games, but again, they finished eight. So if you look at Everton over the last decade or so, They've always been, not always, they've largely been a pretty good home team and a bad away team. And this season, Dyche has just got them playing well away from home. And even the games where they've lost, they got hammered by Villa. Okay, they got hammered by Villa. Their only other away defeat is Liverpool. But yet they've lost four times, five times at home. So if Dyche can get the home form back on track, and again, wins over Newcastle and Chelsea are really promising sign towards that. And the Bournemouth win, in hindsight, looks better because Bournemouth are playing so well now. But if he can get their home form to tick up, the 10 points is going to probably ruin any chance of a top half finish. But they could be there, thereabouts, 11, 12, 13. And looking at it and thinking, geez, if it wasn't for the points deduction, we'd maybe be have been competing for Europe. And considering what he took over from Lampard, I, I just, and, and even what went on under him at the back half of last season, I do just think Dyche has done a brilliant job, especially considering it's not like he's had big bags of money to spend. He spent $32 million in the summer. But that's against sales of 80 million. So they sold a number of players in the summer. Moise Keane, that deal finally went through to Juve. They sold Ella Sims. They sold uh, Isha Samuel Smith. They sold Tom Cannon. They sold Alex Awobi. They sold Damari Gray. Now, I, I think you could argue the summer signings haven't really been all that impactful yet. I mean, Trimetti hasn't played a whole lot. Beto is coming off the bench. Young hasn't been particularly good. Danjuma doesn't play a whole lot. And Jack Harrison's the one that has made an impact. But I even think there's more to come from him. I still don't think he's playing it close to his best. But I just think Dyche has done a tremendous job. And if they can get themselves out of the financial mire and if this takeover does happen or another company comes in to buy them out, I do think they're putting in place at least the foundations of a real team who could potentially start to build towards something, you know, in the way that we've seen Aston Villa build sustainably. And now we see what Villa are doing. That's got to be the, the the wave that Everton start to look at things. Maybe we're not going to be Villa. Maybe we're not going to be 
third in the Premier League after 17 games. But couldn't we be in the top six, the top seven? Couldn't we compete for Europe? Like, you're Everton Football Club. You're a big club. If you can get the right owners in and they're willing to spend some money and you identify correctly the players that you need, you don't have to spend huge money. You don't have to spend enormous money to have success in this league. Look at Brighton, look at Brentford, even West Ham haven't spent enormous money. You know, they sold Rice to pay for most of what they did in the summer. Everton don't have anyone to sell that would bring in a huge fee that Gordon was probably the last one. But, you know, there's a couple of good players there that they can start building around and hopefully in the next 18 months to you know, 18 to 30 months, we'll see Everton competing to be back in Europe. And that would be be really good. If Dyche can get them to that point, I think I think you'd have to give him his flowers. I think you should give him his flowers now. I, I think after Unai Emery, he's doing the best job in the Premier League. The second club that I just want to touch on quickly is Forrest. Um only three wins this season, 14 points. Now, look, they're they're better than they were this time last year when everybody was writing them off through 17 games of last season. We had seen Forrest win three games with one, two, three, four draws. Um five draws, excuse me, five draws. So actually, they were they were in the same position they're in now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, they they actually had the same record this time last year. So there was I thinking they were better off. They're not. They're the same spot they were in this time last year. The difference is there's three worst teams in the league this year. They were 18th this time last year, having been 20th for much of the season to that point, 19 to 20th. This season, because the three newly promoted teams have been a step below, Forrest have been able to keep their heads above water a bit more. But they were actually in the same position. How are we looking goals-wise? Uh, let's see. Four... Five, six, 11, 12, 13, 23, 29, 30. They conceded 34 this time last season. Uh, this season, they've conceded 30. So there's, they're conceding less. Uh, they'd scored 1, 2. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They only scored twelve this season. They've scored seventeen, so they are scoring more. So those signs are positive, but the results, the results are an issue. And you know they they did start this season looking an improved outfit. I think it's fair to say you know through the first eleven games. They'd lost four, that they'd won three and they'd drawn four. So it did look positive. Now, though, the last six games, they've taken one point. 
They've lost their last three at home. They've won one of their last eight. That was against Villa as well, which I genuinely think if you play that game 10 times over, they probably lose it eight out of 10. So I just don't think, I think Villa are so much better than them. Still just the one away win, which is in fairness, the same tally they had in all of last season. I do worry about Steve Cooper. I mean, you look at the summer, you look at what they did. At first, it looked like they were going to have a sensible summer. And then all of a sudden, this raft of players arrived. You know, they signed Chris Wood on a deal that had been agreed in January. They got him on loan with an obligation. So they had to do that deal. Then they don't do anything else until the 22nd of July. Ola Aina arrives. Okay. You had a bunch of fullbacks. You've added one more. Fair enough. They sign Anthony Alanga. You start to think of probably means Brennan Johnson might be off. So fair enough. They needed a goalkeeper. They added Matt Turner. Is Matt Turner good enough to be first choice? Probably not. He's probably more of a backup. Maybe they'll bring in another, another goalkeeper. Then they add Murillo on the 21st, sorry, the 31st of August. You think, okay, he's a young centre-back. They can bring him in. They can develop him. And he's got a really high upside. And then on deadline day, they sign five players permanently and two on loan. Now, they'd also signed Gonzalo Montiel and Andre Santos on loan prior to the deadline. But on deadline day, they add seven new players. Now, they're all good players. Nicholas Dominguez, good player. Callum Hudson-Odoi, good player. Ibrahim Sanger, good to very good. Andrew Oman Babadelli, good player. Nuno Tavares, he's a bit meh, but, you know, Divock Origi, he's, yeah. And then they signed the goalkeeper, Odysseus. You think, well, is he actually, is he good enough to be the starter? Or have they now got two backup goalkeepers? And you start to look at their squad and kind of feels like they've got two backup goalkeepers. It doesn't really feel like they've got a, a quality starter. In defence, you know, I mean, Tavares is hit and miss. Joe Worrell hasn't excelled at the Premier League level. Nico Williams hasn't excelled at the Premier League level. Same for Harry Toffolo. Felipe, I wouldn't be a fan. Nia Cathy, I do like. He's had some injuries, but he seems to be, you know, staying more resilient this season. Aurier, you know... I do like McKenna, but I don't know if he's quite good enough if you want to be more than a relegation scrapper. Montiel is excellent. I don't know why he's not in the team every game. I really don't. I don't know why he's not in the team every game. Uh, Willie Bolly, I think he's a couple of years past his best. Oman Bamadeli hasn't played for them yet this season in the league. Um, Murillo looks a really good player, a really, really good player. And Olaine is a good, solid player. So you could put together a good defense there. You know, either in a four or in a five, you could put together a good defense with Montiel and Aina, maybe as your wingbacks, or Montiel and Tavares as your wingbacks. Aina could be one of your center backs, but he could just come off the bench. You've got Omar Bamadeli should be starting. 
Nia Cathy should be starting and Marullo should be starting. So that, that's your back three. Oma Bamadali, Nia Cathy and Marillo. Marillo probably in the middle. And then, you know, in midfield, they've got good options. Mangala is good. Sangera is good. I think Czech Koyate is past his best. Gibbs White is excellent. Santos is a big, big talent. Dominguez is a good player. Ryan Yates is a, is a solid citizen. Danilo is excellent. Like, they should be putting together a good, strong midfield. Now, up front, they are short. Awani is injured. He'd obviously be a starter. Chris Wood is very hit and miss. Hudson Adoy is hit and miss. Alanga's hit and miss. And Divock Origi. I mean, you know, he is what he is. But if you've got, let's say, a back three of Omabamadali, Murillo, and Nia Carter, that's strong. Montiel, one side. Let's just say Olaena, the other side, because I think he is the, the best of them individually. If that's your back five, and then you can line up, say, Sanger and Dominguez, or Sang- actually Sanger and Danilo as your midfield two, with Gibbs White as a 10 behind a Wanee and a Langa, like, that's a good, strong 11. Now, obviously, you've got some injuries, but a one E steps out. It shouldn't just all fall apart. I just, you look at the team they put out at the weekend and you just think, I'm not sure of the thought process here. You're at home. You've gone 3-5-2, but your front two are Alanga, who's a winger, and Gibbs White is a midfielder. Your midfield three is Yates, Mangala, and Coyate. While on the bench, you've got Danilo and Dominguez. Now, obviously, Sanger was injured, but still, two of your best, better midfielders are on the bench. You've got Nico Williams and Harry Tofolo as your wingbacks, while Montial and Aina are on the bench. You've got Willie Bolly starting, while Oma Bamadeli is on the bench. It just doesn't seem like he's putting out the best players to give his team the best opportunity to win games. And that's generally a bad sign with a manager. And I would imagine there's going to be more and more talk and more and more pressure now on him. And I think at this stage, you're looking at him, you're looking at Vincent company and you're looking to be fair. That's probably it. That's probably it. You're looking at either of them to be the next manager fired after Paul Heckenbottom. Company or Steve Cooper. Cooper will find a job easier, but Company will get another job. He does, he's done a good job at Burnley. It just His own naivety has cost him in the Premier League. But he did a great job last year in the Championships. So that will earn him another job. Other than that, I think everybody's probably safe at the moment. Pochettino, I think, could come under fire at any point. Aside from that, unless Palace have another wobble and, and Roy does something says, says something insulting, I, I think he's he's going to be okay. Uh, but Cooper, unfortunately for me, because I was it, the point with Forrest and Everton is more the two clubs that I admire for different reasons, the two big clubs as well. Again, for different reasons, Everton fan base history, Forrest, Brian Clough, two European cups. 
And there's two managers I like, but one of them is thriving and the other one is really struggling. But I do think the less the lessons that he learns at Forest will stand Steve Cooper in good stead moving forward. Uh, we'll go to break. When we come back, we'll just do news and gossip and we'll be done. So I'll see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So we have had some draws made today for the next round of European competition. Uh, we'll begin, obviously, with the Champions League as the most important competition of the three. And we've had the draw made today for the last 16. So, what we get is Porto versus Arsenal, Napoli versus Barcelona, PSG versus Real Sociedad, Inter Milan versus Atletico Madrid, PSV Eindhoven versus Dortmund, Lazio versus Bayern Munich, Copenhagen versus Manchester City, and RB Leipzig versus Real Madrid. Now, I would say that the only two really attractive ones in that, which actually, no, three. I would say there are three which are really attractive ties and are very difficult to predict are Napoli-Barca, Both of them have fallen off from where they were last season. I do think Barca would have some trouble dealing with the Napoli attack if Kivica and Osman, who got a ridiculous assist at the weekend, if you haven't seen it, are on form. But I would still fancy Barca to win. PSG Real Sociedad is an interesting one. PSG have an endless supply of talent. Clearly, the more talented team and the more talented squad and the more money to spend and all the rest but Real Sociedad are more of a team and I think they play better as a unit than Real than PSG do I would still fancy PSG to win and then Inter versus Atletico Madrid I think that's the toughest one I think that's the real pick I think that's a coin toss I was hoping they'd avoid each other I'd imagine they were hoping they'd avoid each other I know Diego Simeone was definitely hoping they'd avoid each other because that's one of his former clubs and that he has a lot of respect and admiration for. It's one of the few clubs he'd probably manage if and when he ever leaves Atleti. The others, they seem quite straightforward. You would expect Arsenal to beat Porto quite comfortably. You would expect Dortmund to beat PSV. You would expect Bayern to beat Lazio. You would expect City to beat Copenhagen. And you would expect Real Madrid to beat Leipzig. So how these will work is City, Copenhagen and... Well, actually, sorry, Copenhagen City and Leipzig Real. The first leg will be the 13th of February. And then the return games will be the 6th of March. On the 14th of February, we get... PSG versus Real Sociedad and Lazio versus Bayern and the return legs of them are the 5th of March. On the 20th of February, we get Inter versus Atleti, PSV versus Dortmund and the return is the 13th of March. And on the 21st of February, we get Porto Arsenal and Napoli Barcelona with the returns on the 12th of March. The draw then for the quarterfinals will take place on the 15th of March. Overall, 
you would say that what it does is it sets up the quarterfinals to be really, really strong. You would expect, like I said, Arsenal, Barca, PSG, coin toss, Dortmund, Bayern, City and Real to be your eight quarterfinalists. And whatever way they get drawn, they're going to be four really strong ties. So I think that's shaped up pretty well. In the Europa League, in the knockout rounds, these games will take place the 15th and then the returns will be the 18th, sorry, the 22nd of February. Feyenoord Roma, that should be pretty good. They played each other a couple of years ago in the Conference League, I want to say. Two very conflicting styles with Arnie Slots, Feyenoord, how high-powered their attack can be, and then obviously Mourinho Bowl. Milan versus Rennes should be decent. Milan will be favourites, but Rennes have some really exciting players. Lens versus Freiburg, okay. Young Boys versus Sporting, you would expect Sporting to get through there. Benfica versus Toulouse, you'd expect Benfica to get through. Braga versus Quarabeg, you'd expect it to be Braga. Galatasaray versus Sparta Prague. I think that's a really interesting one because Sparta were very good through their group, but Galatasaray should have enough. And then Shakhtar versus Marseille, and I think you'd have to fancy Marseille. I don't think there's any lopsided ones. Young boys sporting. Sporting will be heavy favourites. But aside from that, I mean, Benfica have just been poor in Europe this season. Now, they obviously got four points in the last two games to avoid complete elimination from Europe as they drop in here. But you would still expect them to be Toulouse. But all the rest of them seem fairly evenly matched, as they should. Like, these are Champions League teams dropping in versus obviously runners-up in the Europa League groups. I think sporting over young boys is the new one I'm looking at and thinking that's a fairly straightforward pick, but maybe it won't be. Maybe it won't be. So again, those games are the 15th and the 22nd of February, and the draw will then be the 23rd of February. And finally, the Europa Conference League, uh, Sturm Graz versus Slovan Bratislava, Servette versus Ludogorets, Union St. Gillowell versus Eintracht Frankfurt, that's probably the worst possible draw for Union as they drop in out of the Europa League. Real Betis versus Dinamo Zagreb should be interesting. Olympiacos versus Ferenc Varos. I can see that one being feisty. Ajax versus Bodo Glimt. Molde against Legia Warsaw. And Maccabee Haifa versus Ghent. So again, they all look fairly well balanced. Again, all those games are the 15th and then the 22nd of February. And then it is the draw on the 23rd. And the winners of those will face the eight group winners from the Europa Europa Conference League as the winners of the knockout playoff round in the Europa League will play the winners of the groups from the Europa League. Uh, So, yeah, we can park Europe now for a couple of months and not have to worry about it. We know what the draws are. We know who's playing who. We know what to look forward to and what to kind of overlook. Sunderland have a new manager. They have appointed Michael McBeal, uh, former Rangers manager, former QPR manager, obviously was sacked by Rangers 
earlier this season after three defeats in the first seven league games, had been part of Stephen Gerrard's coaching staff there and is very highly regarded, had left Gerrard after they'd gone, both gone to Villa. He left Gerrard and went off to kind of plough his own furrow, I suppose, at, um, at QPR. Started really well, got offered the Wolves job, turned it down, spoke about loyalty, and then was out the door the next chance he had to go to Wolves, or to go to Rangers, rather. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. It just didn't work out at Rangers. Um, Spent some money, spent some of it badly. Sunderland is an interesting job because it's a big club, big fan base, but big expectation as well. And there's a lot of talent there. And he will be expected to get them promoted. Not this season necessarily, but I think next season, he'll certainly be expected to be very strong in contention for promotion. So best of luck to him and see how he does. Um, the man himself, Gareth Crooks, is his team of the week up, and as expected, it is nonsense. Uh, he's picked Onana, who had very little to do. He's picked Diogo Delo, who got sent off and got a bit of a chasing by Luis Diaz at times. He's picked Tarkovsky. I'm amazed he didn't pick Michael King. Amazed. Uh, he's picked Moreno because he scored, but he also gifted Brentford a goal, so you know, that's an odd one. He's picked Lewis Miley because he scored. He's picked Cole Palmer, because he scored. He's picked Onana. Guess what he did? I don't mind him getting picked. And he's picked Elise because he scored. In attack, he's gone with Kudus, Jesus, and Watkins. And again, they all scored. Watkins did not play well in that game against Brentford. So I, I really don't understand that one. Um, Miley did score, but Bruno Gomerich was the best player on the pitch by a country mile. But he said of Miley... It looks like Newcastle may have unearthed another gym, another gem rather. Lewis Miley is his name, and his game reminds me more of a Stephen Gerrard than a Paul Gascoigne. More comfortable on his left side than his right. But that didn't seem to matter the way he struck the ball so sweetly with his right foot to score his first goal for the club. I I think Lewis Miley looks a hell of a talent. He doesn't remind me in any way, shape, or form of Stephen Gerrard. Like genuinely not in any single way, other than the fact that he is quite tall. But this statement, more comfortable on his left side than his right side, he's right-footed. He's right-footed. Has Gareth Crooks not seen him play? He's right-footed. It's a bizarre statement. Um, Very, very strange. Anyway, but Gareth Crooks is a very strange man. Moving on to the gossip. Chelsea could make a move for Aaron Ramsdale. No, they won't. Barcelona may sell Robert Lewandowski this summer to help fund a move for Bruno Gomerich. I don't know what sort of fee you'd get for Lewandowski, but he's 35 and I don't think it'd be a big fee. But that is an exclusive from Jack Talbot, who is is a compulsive liar. Real Madrid are keeping tabs on Jude Bellingham's younger brother, Job. I doubt it. He's a talented kid, but I doubt it. Tottenham are lining up a move for Benfica's Brazilian defender, Morato, after he impressed scouts who watched him against RB Salzburg. He is a good player, to be fair. He is a good player and would make sense for them as a backup lefty with Van de Ven. 
Um, West Ham are hoping to sell Pablo Fornals to help fund their January spending. The Hammers are keen to sign two fullbacks and a striker. Definitely could do with a left back. I think right back's not too bad. Uh, did I mention earlier that Sioux Fall was very lucky not to get sent off? That was definitely an elbow we threw. Um, yeah, striker would help. Chelsea are braced for a 34 million battle with Italian giants, Juventus, Inter Milan and Roma for the signature of Torino and Inter defender Alessandro Buongiorni. Um, do Chelsea have interest in him? I, I've never heard his name mentioned with Chelsea. So he's a, he's a talented defender, to be fair. He's developed really well over the last couple of years, recently broke into the Italian senior team. Um, I definitely think he'll move on. But I, I see him as one that will stay in Italy. And I think of the clubs being linked, Inter are the one that makes the most sense. I think him in the middle of their back three with Bastoni to his left would be really strong. United States midfielder Brendan Aronson may cut short his loan at Union Berlin and return to Leeds because of a lack of regular first-team football. <laughs> He'd be a great addition for Leeds to get now because they're playing really well, but the one weak point in their team, I think, is Dan James. I just don't think he offers anything. If you could get an Aronson in who can offer some creativity, I think that could really help them. With Somerville, the other side, Perot behind Jorginho, the midfield pairing with Ampadu and Kamara, it's pretty strong. If you put Aronson in on the right, that's pretty strong. The defence looks pretty good. I don't like Jed Spence, the left back, but I want him in the team. And Archie Gray has to be in the team. So you could move Archie Gray into midfield next to Ampadu, put Spence to right back and maybe play someone else left back. Drop Kamara, but Kamara has been quite good. So we'll see, but that would make sense. Liverpool face competition from Newcastle, AC Milan and Roma for 60 million rated Piero Hincapié. I don't think it'll cost 60 million to get him. Manchester United will not make a decision on Eric Ten Hag's future until Jim Ratcliffe's investment deal is complete. Luka Modric is set to leave Real Madrid at the end of the season as the club is not expected to offer him a new contract. Might make sense. It might make sense just to move on at this point. The Saudi Pro League will make renewed attempts to sign Mohamed Salah next summer. Okay. Manchester City are looking at a bid for Joe Polina. I doubt it. I doubt it. I, I, I doubt that one. Uh, Portugal winger Fabio Carvalho is open to return to Fulham if Liverpool are able to recall him. Yeah, I mean, I could see that making a lot of sense for everybody involved. Brentford and England striker Ivan Tony is said to be excited about the possibility of joining Arsenal. Um, I mean, it's from the spoofer with the catchphrase, so... I'll just I'll just say it's nonsense. I'm just going to say it's nonsense. I just don't see how Arsenal would have the money to sign him in January. They couldn't afford to buy David Rea and that apparently they can't afford to make that permanent in January anyway. 
and Brentford will nail them to the wall for Ivan Tony. Saudi director of football, Michael Imanello, says a conf- conversation remains open with regards to pers- pursuing a deal for Kylian Mbappe. Just give it up. He's not going to go there. Uh, Chelsea and Manchester City have joined Barcelona in the race to sign River Plate's 17-year-old Argentine midfielder Claudio Echeverri. By all accounts, super talented. Burnley are keen to do a deal with Marseille for their 15 million rated Senegalese midfielder Pape Gay. He would help them. He is one of the things they need, but centre-back and striker, more, more pressing. Scouts from Premier League clubs, including Liverpool, Arsenal and Chelsea, have reportedly watched Joe Bellingham. I doubt it. I'd, I'd say they're all keeping an eye on him, but I doubt anybody's actually looking at him for a move anytime soon because he needs games, he needs to develop, and Sunderland is a better place for that to happen than any of the Premier League clubs. Eindrick Frankfurt will have the option to buy Donny van de Beek for $8.5 million in the summer after an initial loan. That would be a $36.5 million loss for United. Oof. AC Milan have asked, Bar- have asked Barcelona for information about Clement Langley's situation at Aston Villa. He's not very good. That's the situation. Manchester City wanted Everton to pay a $7.5 million loan fee for Calvin Phillips in the summer transfer window. I think that's fair, to be honest. Barcelona are scouting Jurgarden's 17-year-old Swedish midfielder, Lucas Bergvall. A lot of clubs have been linked with him. He's meant to be very, very good. Middlesbrough have made an initial offer to sign Joe Worrell. I think that's a move that suits everybody. I do think he's just, his lack of pace has been exposed a little bit in the Premier League. I think he'd be fine in the middle of a back three with pace either side, but for some reason, Steve Cooper doesn't like that. Um, Juventus want to sign Calvin Phillips. That one's been going on for months. Crystal Palace have, have expressed interest in Eddie and Ketia. Do Eddie and Ketia is 24? And he's still talked about like he's like 1920. Arsenal and Manchester City have both targeted, are both targeting Douglas Luiz with neither club put off by Villa's 100 million value. Neither of them are going to pay 100 million for him. If they do, they should be shot. It's just massive overpay. Very good player. Massive overplay. Jaden Sancho's representatives are trying to force away a move, force a move away from Manchester United, but a swap deal sending him to Borussia Dortmund will be too complicated. I'm not sure how. Um, Manchester United want to clear out players next summer in order to sign David Alaba. Well, as we heard earlier, David Alaba has torn his ACL, so. Not a, not, not a, oh, that, that was on a different podcast. Um, David Alabatore's ACL over the weekend, so he's not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Everton are interested in signing Illiman and Joy. I don't like the fit. I don't like the fit of that. Fulham are considering a move for Mats Viefer. I assume that's if Paulinho leaves. That would make a ton of sense. If they get him and Andre, Viefer and Andre, that's a really good midfield. Um, Manchester City are set to join Real Madrid in the race for Girona's 22-year-old left-back, Miguel Gutierrez, who technically is owned by Manchester City. So I, I wouldn't imagine it'd be much of a race. Oh, you bid 20 million? We bid three. Oh, look, we won. Leeds could sell Wilfred Nonto in January. <laughs> I don't really understand what's going on with Nonto. 
they refused massive bids in the summer, refused loan offers, insisted he stay, and now he just doesn't play. He comes off the bench. It's very strange. Uh, Tottenham and Denmark midfielder Pierre-Emil Heusberg is on Juventus' January list. This one also just for clicks and to make up column inches. But that's all I have today, folks. That's everything. Not, Not great. Not great. There's not a whole lot of stuff going on at the moment that the rumors are not particularly good, are they? Like there's, there's nothing really juicy to get yourself excited about. So we'll see if that ticks up now over the next few days, but I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye bye. Network.